Okay, so I did stop, not stop, but I did talk to a stranger on my bike ride today. She was did playing she's playing music on her bike ride and it was I like big butts and I was like <laughs> I was like thank you so much for your music. I love this song. Were you like singing along like my anaconda don't want want none, none unless, unless you, you got, got buns, buns <laughs> As a woman with a butt, I've always loved that song. And Me too. Yeah, you can do side bends or sit-ups. But please don't lose that butt. (laughs) Hello, shiny epi friends. I'm Lisa Bodner. Welcome to the show. I'm really glad you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Leslie McClure, Leslie is a professor and chair of epidemiology and biostatistics at Drexel School of Public Health. Her PhD is actually in biostats, but she certainly is a shiny epi person in my mind. I had been actually following Leslie for a couple of years on Twitter and then finally met her at our last annual epidemiology conference. I wanted to meet her because Online, I found her to be not only accomplished, but also authentic. Leslie just won the Janet Norwood Award for Outstanding Achievement by a Woman in Statistics, a prestigious national award in her field. And while these and many other awards and achievements illustrate on paper that she's an important, valued woman in our field, you will see through even our short conversation the real value that she brings. Lisa. Welcome to the show. So glad you're here. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to be here. Your hair looks really nice. It's so long. And everyone's like, oh, your hair's so long. I'm like, it's way too fucking long. What if you like gave it a hack? I'm a little scared too, because the only time I've ever cut my own hair is when I gave myself bangs and that did not end well. (laughs) Tell me about that. (laughs) Oh no, it was like Oh, they're not even. It's the normal thing, right? They're not even. I need to get a little shorter till I'm standing there in the mirror, like crying, being like, take the scissors <laughs> away from me. How old were you? Uh, I was married. So like 23. <laughs> <laughs> this was not like a, like a high school kid. This was like, oh, it's just, it's, how hard can this be? Right? Oh my so God. Did you have bangs? And then you just decided no. to. I decided you, I needed bangs. bangs. Oh, yeah. Bad idea. Oh, that's a terrible idea. Like, there's a whole science to where your bangs should start and end, and I don't even know. It was a terrible idea. (laughs) You're such a a well-respected, well-known leader in public health. There are so many things I admire about you, but one of them is the fact that you are very comfortable being vulnerable. I mean, I think it's something I've grown into as I've gotten older, that I've just gotten more comfortable with who I am and my my failures and my successes. And talking about them, I think, is important because nobody talked about them to me. Uh, You know, in academics, we look around and we see all these people who have these amazing CVs. They don't ever tell you that it was an, an easy path to get there. Once I started talking to people about my struggles, people would open up and it became really clear that we're all struggling with different things. And you know, we just don't, we don't celebrate our failures. We don't Mm -hmm. say, oh shit, I got another paper rejected for the fourth time today, which I did by the way. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think when I was more junior, it just seemed more important when I had failures. Like if a paper didn't get accepted, it was like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. And I think as I've gotten older, I've just realized that that's not true, right? Like, and, and my whole life and my whole career don't hinge on that paper. When I say those types of things now, I worry that I am saying that because I'm at a place where a paper doesn't make or break my career. Right. Would that have applied to me when I was at that stage or is it only because I have the long view that I'm not remembering that like, no, I really needed that paper in order to get that RO1. You know what I mean? No, I think that's a great point. And I I do a lot of times qualify things when I say them with, I have the benefit of being senior. But I also think that part of why those are such hard things to deal with is because we personalize them. And so if I get a paper rejected, when I was younger, I would be like, I'm terrible at this, right? And that's not what it means. Being able to separate that from who I am, that's what I do, this is who I am. Mm. And I think that was something I got better at earlier in my career, that maybe I wasn't so flippant, like, oh, it's just one paper, it's not going to make or break my career. But I was able to separate that from I'm terrible at this and I should quit. And I think that's really important to remember that, like, When you do get a paper back and you see these reviews, it's not a review of you as a person. Mm. It's a review. It's a critique of this work. And and it's so hard to separate that because we spend so much time doing this work that it feels so personal. Thinking about like experiences I had and how I reacted to them. Like I, I like to talk about that I failed my qualifying exam. Did you? And I did the first time I took it. And it was a time at Michigan where... No students that anyone could remember had failed their exam, and I was the first. Not ah, yeah, yeah. Wow, how did that feel in the moment? Oh my gosh, it was devastating. Right, it didn't even cross my radar that I could fail, and I really had to sit and think about: Did I want to try and take it again? So it was, but it was devastating, and it was really, it really like solidified my imposter syndrome. So I should be clear: I had there were two parts to the exam, the applied and the theory, and I failed the theory part. And Michigan is a so I my PhD is in biostat, and Michigan's a very theoretical program. And everyone around me, you know, they were getting promoted and tenured for their methods work, and I wasn't seeing examples of people that were being successful as collaborators who were helping other scientists do their work and and writing papers that appealed to clinical audiences. And so it took me a long time to not think I was a failure because I wasn't doing what the faculty around me and my PhD were doing. And once you were out of your PhD, did did you then start to see examples of people that were who had degrees in biostats and who were doing the things that you thought that resonated more were a better fit for you? Yeah, I was really, really lucky to be hired at UAB at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where people were being more collaborative. And and I was really good at grant writing and really, I am, I shouldn't say I was, I am really good at grant writing and a really good collaborator. Being collaborative was valued. And I learned that, that you can be a good biostatistician and be collaborative. There's all these different things you can do with a PhD in biostatistics. So, so you can be in a teaching, primarily teaching position. So I have a colleague who got a PhD at UNC, you know, another top program, and he's now 
at Westchester University very happily in a teaching position. You can work at a cancer center where you're primarily collaborating, nev almost never teaching, doing fewer methods papers. You can work in a department like I was at at UAB or like we have at Drexel where you're very collaborative and that's valued. Or you can work at a place where you're doing methods work. And, and, and then, of course, you can go into industry, you can go into government, you can go into nonprofits and you can do... I mean, anything. You can go work at Google now and make three times what I make as department <laughs> yeah, chair. Right. And I don't know why I don't. <laughs> why don't you? I love working with students. I love mentoring. What do you like so much about it? I like seeing other people be successful. And so, you know, with students and then now as department chair, you know, a big part of my job is mentoring and helping other people be successful. One of the things about mentoring that I've started to realize is that you will have more of an impact in academia by mentoring than you ever will in your research. The idea that you can affect so many other people's trajectories and help push them along, you know, it's like this multiplicative effect, right? <laughs> that you send them off and then they go and they do great things and then they train other people to do great things and then it just keeps going. I know. Mentoring is such an important aspect of what we do. And I think the, the best parts of it are like the hidden mentoring, like the mentoring that's happening when we don't know it's even happening. Yeah. Can you talk about that? That's cool. One of my uh, best mentors was Catherine Challoner. She was the chair of biostatistics at the University of Iowa. Our paths crossed through mutual um, work through the Math Alliance. I think I was a junior faculty. I was an assistant professor when I first met her. She and I would have just offhanded conversations, you know, in a cab on the way to the airport or waiting in line to check in at the airport or over breakfast when we were both at a meeting. And she also had an academic spouse and she would talk about things like how they each took a year and worked part-time when their kids were born. And they really seemed to have a really equitable relationship. And just to have an example of that, because I didn't have a lot of examples of that beforehand. And I remember one of the things she said to me was, I noticed there weren't a lot of female full professors in your department. When are you going to go up for full professor? Mm. And that was just the nudge I needed to start the process for promotion. And it's not that anyone at UAB was trying to hold me back, but nobody had thought to say, I think you're ready. Of course, as a woman, I was hesitant to say, I think I'm ready. I don't think if you asked her, she would say, oh, yeah, I was mentoring Leslie, right? <laughs> right. She, she was just having conversation with me. And, um, you know, there's other people I think about who, again, I... I don't think Karen Bandine Roche at Hopkins would consider herself a mentor for me, but she's a very wise person and she's done amazing things in her department. And she's someone I totally look up to as a role model. And anytime she speaks, I listen intently because I know whatever she says is going to be really insightful. There are some women at Pitt who I'll just have a meeting with like every couple of years mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm just like, hey, could we talk? And they it's just like you were saying, these little, these gems that, and they're just talking, right? They're not like, right. here are my gems. <laughs> they're right. just, they just talk and they're so smart and so savvy that I'm just like sitting there with bated breath. I think we have this idea that mentoring is this formal relationship where you have regular meetings, but we forget about that there's other ways that you can learn from people and there's other ways that people can serve as a mentor that isn't this 
I'm going to meet you on Tuesdays at three o'clock for an hour, and here's our agenda. As you've gotten further along in your career, you still rely on mentors to the same extent as you did before, right? Maybe even more so, because again, like as I get further along, there's more things I have to do that I wasn't trained to do. Like what? Oh my gosh, like annual reviews, for instance. I mean, now I'm doing it for my sixth time, so now I know, but I don't know what what to do, how to how to approach that, um, how to assign teaching. You know, they see they're very concrete things. The flip side of that is, as I've gotten further along in my career, it gets harder and harder to find mentors because mm-hmm. there's fewer people doing what I'm doing. The assumption is, as you get further along, you need mentoring less, and so it's it's definitely been more of me reaching out to people and saying, "Do you want to talk a little bit? I've got you know when I for instance when I was negotiating to be chair. I had no idea. What do you ask for? Mm-hmm. You know, and I has, I was fortunate to have some colleagues who were really helpful in that and say, okay, here's what you should here. Here's, here's how to think about it. And so I try to pay that forward now. And I know other people who are looking for chair positions or, or negotiating, you know, I'm always like, I'm happy to help, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share. And especially as a woman, women are much less likely to negotiate for more resources than men. And so it's hard to think about what am I worth? What's reasonable? And what I might think is reasonable is different from what you might think. So so having good mentoring for that was really helpful. Is it lonely being the chair of a department? It is. It's really lonely. Yeah. There are a lot of things that I just have nobody to talk to about. And it's not even like they're secrets. But when I get stuck on an issue or a question from a faculty member, you know, 50% of the time, it's something that I can't talk about with another faculty member. And Mm. so it is lonely and it is hard because people see me as the boss. And even the people I have a close relationship with in the department, I still have to do their annual evaluation. And so there is this power differential, Mm -hmm. whether I think I have any power or not. Yeah, that must be tough. How have you dealt with people-pleasing tendencies while also being the chair of a department? So I've really worked on that, actually. When I came to Drexel about a year after I started, I did this program called the ELAM program. It's Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine. And as part of that, you do a 360 evaluation. And one of the comments that I got from a couple of people was that I try too hard to build consensus. And so that's something I've really worked on was how to gather information without being paralyzed by trying to please everyone. And actually, one of the things I think I do pretty well is I've learned how to have difficult conversations. I've realized that it only gets worse if you don't. And actually, one of my staff members likes to tell me that I do a really good job of saying like, you're doing a shitty job, but making it sound like I'm being really nice. Can you say to me, I'm doing a shitty job so I can see what that sounds like. Lisa, I know you've been working really hard, but it just doesn't feel like you're meeting the goals that we set out for you to meet. So let's talk about how we can get you to where you need to be rather than where you are right now. Yeah, that's super. Let's talk quickly about work-life balance, Leslie, because as a woman with children, you know, our to-do list is endless, Mm -hmm. right? How do you manage that? It causes me a lot of stress that I have a long to-do list. I remember when I was a new assistant professor in my chair, I would say, gosh, I have so much to do. And he's like, you'll just be happier when you realize that you're never going to cross everything off your to-do list. 
And he's right, but I still try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I have to have other things. I know myself and I know that if I don't take breaks, if I try to work like crazy, I get burned out. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk a lot about work-life balance. I do work a lot in the evenings or on the weekends, but usually it's like I'm sitting in front of the TV with my daughter, but never anything that takes high intense focus. Mm-hmm. But I know if I work through the weekend, Monday, yeah, I'm a waste. Tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then having children. So when my daughter was born and having children, you know, it forces you like she needed to eat, right? Like <laughs> she's not going to feed herself. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually as they're getting older, the the danger of they can do much more for themselves that now I need to make that work-life balance more intentional. So I will say that for me, one of the one of the things that's been super helpful is I have a supportive partner who like I am not the room mom. I'm never going to be the room mom at school, but he is and he likes that, you know, and mm-hmm. he'll be on the PTA and he'll do all of that shit so that I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And I'm really fortunate that his career goals are are different than mine. And so, you know, he's willing to and and supportive of having a spouse who wants to be a department chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, work-life balance looks different for everyone. I mean, it's, That's right. it's for sure. And, you know, when people ask me about it, I'm like, you have to figure out what's important for you. And I don't think we do a good enough job with people who are mentoring to talk about, like, what are those things? They can be anything you want them to be. I'm not going to judge any of those choices, but you need to figure out what they are. I talk a lot with my department about my family, about what I did over the weekend. You know, I always ask them, but I try to make it a point to show that, like, I'm not working all the time and I don't expect that they will be either. And to show that like you can be successful and not work all the time. And I think that it's really important to have leaders who make it a point to humanize what we do. Okay. You want to talk about fun stuff? Sure. Wait, this has been fun. This has all been fun. (laughs) 100%. What's the best thing about getting older? Oh, that I don't have to give a shit anymore. Totally. Like if people have a problem with me, that's their problem. Who the fuck cares? Why does it take us so long to figure that out? You know what? I think a lot of people, even at our age, still, they they, they still give fucks. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's really unfortunate, but I don't. I don't give a fuck. And I don't have time to give a fuck, right? Like, no. That's why I think as I've gotten older, my friend group's gotten smaller to really the people who I really want to be around because I don't have time to deal with drama and bullshit, nor do I want to. Yeah, that's great. Is there anything you decided to pursue in quarantine that you abandoned? Quesadillas. (laughs) What does that mean? I ate quesadillas for lunch every single day (laughs) for three months. And by then I was like, oh shit, we're not going back to work. And I cannot keep eating cheese and bread for lunch every single day. So you were like, I'm pursuing quesadillas. I am And now I'm not pursuing quesadillas. I I will tell you, Lisa, you can put anything in a quesadilla, right? Leftover hot dog, put it in a quesadilla, eat it with sauerkraut. Uh, Leftover pulled pork, put it in a quesadilla, eat it with barbecue sauce. I put... Everything in a quesadilla. I see. Okay, but now you're done. You're done with quesadillas. We are over. 
Sorry, quesadillas. I know. It was fun while it lasted. Yeah. (laughs) So if you could make a 20-second phone call to yourself at any point in your life, either in the present, the future, or the past, when would you call and what would you say? I would call myself in 2019 and say, buy stock in Zoom. Right? Yes. I'm creeping up on paying for college, and that would really go a long (laughs) way towards that. Do you have any talents? So my family is like, you don't have any talents. (laughs) (laughs) So the only thing we could come up with is that I can fake burp really well. (laughs) Okay. You can't just say that and not do it. Oh, that wasn't a good one. It was a real burp. Oh, yeah. No, I can make myself burp. Can you oh. Can you make yourself burp? No. No? My daughter no, tried can, it, but my son cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I could make myself fart. Really? Yes, oh, for sure. I wish I could. <laughs> I think my 13-year-old can. My 9-year-old daughter, oh my 100%. <laughs> you know, I know you've talked about armpit farts on here before. Yeah. I taught yeah. my son to armpit fart. It was like the proudest day of my life. You know, I, I grew awesome. up with brothers. These were important skills. Would you rather never be stuck in traffic again or never get another cold? Oh, never stuck in traffic again. Really? Yes. I am such an impatient person. I do not like waiting. Like I will drive way out of my way so that I can keep moving rather than take the shorter route where there's traffic. Don't you just like chill out, listen to podcasts, or just be in silence? I love the silence. Maybe my my opinion is colored by the fact that I used to commute in Birmingham with my kids in the car. So oh, there was oof. never any silence. And then you just sit in your office and you're like, I don't want to go pick them up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I used to remember like driving to pick up the kids at daycare and just sitting in the parking lot. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go in there and it's going to be overwhelming and I'm going to be a mom until eight o'clock tonight. Are you ready? But now my oldest doesn't go to bed till after I do. I know my oldest goes to bed after I do too. My 13-year-old stays up till 10 now. I need at least an hour after he goes to bed because he's the child that requires the most energy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's a very diplomatic way of saying that. And so he's the pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you're listening, Preston, That's right. you're lovely. We love you. You're lovely. There, lots of kids are very high energy and need a lot. But you're super hard. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> What's your order at Starbucks? Grande iced decaf Americano with room. And do you drink that in the winter? Oh, yeah. When you get to be a certain age and you have hot flashes all the time. (laughs) I don't know if you saw my glasses fogging up a few minutes ago. I did not. I did not. You handled it like it didn't even happen. What would be the coolest animal to scale up to the size of a horse? Maybe a seahorse. A seahorse. Oh, that would be interesting. Right? Because it's, why? You want to ride it? Well, maybe. In the ocean? Because it's got a horse in its name. So why should it be so damn small? You're right. Are they really small? I don't know. I always thought are they, they like were. the size of like your pinky? I think there are some that are that small. 
Aren't there some that are bigger? There might be, I don't but know. probably I not the size of this. a horse. No. <laughs> Certainly not the size of a horse. What about a spider? A spider would be so scary. God. That feels very Harry Potter. Yes. Isn't there a Harry Potter? Yeah. Is where it like Aragon or something like that? <laughs> very good. At the beginning of the pandemic, USA was was showing Harry Potter over and over again. And I yeah. kept watching it with commercials, even though I own it. Yeah, I think that um all this JK Rowling bullshit with <sighs> the, you know, being anti-trans has really ruined Harry I Potter know. for me. It's I very know. upsetting it is now. Very upsetting. Fuck her. Yeah. Did you hear that Daniel Radcliffe like put her in her place? No, good for him. Yeah. I was like, way to go, dude. Speaking of horse, you remember what happened with him and the horse? What? Didn't he play a role where he was naked or something? Is that what? Didn't he like fuck a horse? I don't know. Did he? (laughs) I mean, maybe he did it. I mean, he was just naked and a horse. I've just probably spread a terrible rumor. No, no, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to do it right now so that we know that how wrong I was. Daniel Radcliffe, horse sex. I've got some amazing images. Yeah. He's like ripped in those photos. Oh, it's here. I knew it had something to do with sex. It says, it's true that some of the play's themes draw on a sensual attraction towards horses. Oh, oh. But at no point, and I want to make that clear, does he have sex with a horse? <laughs> See, I am not the only person that has ever Googled Daniel Radcliffe horse sex. That is, I'm sure you're not. Okay. Oh, man. He is ripped. Yeah. This does another another site. At no point does the main character actually have sex with a horse. <laughs> All right. Well, there you there you have it. <laughs> There you have it, shiny Epi People listeners. Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> did, did not. not fuck a horse. <laughs> I know that when you tuned into the podcast, that's what you were hoping you're going to hear about. Right. You know, Leslie McClure and I, that's what we bring. <laughs> Harry Potter, nudity. Horse fucking. <laughs> Leslie, I'm so glad you did this with me. I'm so glad you asked me. For ENAR, I'm on the executive committee. What is ENAR? It's the East North American region <laughs> of the Biometric Society. So even better, the West North American we- region is WENAR. <laughs> I want to go to WENAR so badly. Totally. Is WENAR big? No, it's not. <laughs> it's cold where WENAR is. <laughs> it's cold and small. <laughs> I'm sure we aren't the first to make that joke, I but know. still. 